Welcome to Strike Deck Radio, a podcast focused on customer success and the leaders who are implementing best practices in our field. This podcast is brought to you by Strike Deck, a Medallia company, and the Success League. StrikeDeck is a customer success automation platform that helps CSMs effectively manage their customer relationships. The StrikeDeck solution enables churn prevention, upsells, and customer advocacy. They use machine learning and predictive analytics to bubble up insights and alerts about customer health, sentiment, and engagement. The Success League is a consulting firm focused on customer success. We work with executives who are ready to build and develop a top-performing customer success team that drives revenue and retention for their organization. We also offer a certification program for CSMs and coaching for customer success leaders. For more information, you can visit our website at thesuccessleague.io. My name is Kristen Hayer, and I'm the host of Strike Deck Radio and the founder and CEO of the Success League. Clayton Molino, who joins us today from Perth, Australia, will be sharing his experience building a customer success program at Auth0, from when it was a startup with 20 employees through the scaling process to land at a company of 600 employees. I know many in our audience are in the middle of scaling their CS programs right now, so I hope today's podcast is helpful for you. Clayton, welcome to the show. Thanks, Kristen. Great to be here. Before we get started, can you share with the audience how you landed in customer success? Sure, I can. And uh, I've listened to a number of your podcasts, and I think the, the, the story is uh, the story is pretty typical of a lot of your guests. It wasn't certainly a straight line and uh, <laughs> uh, a, a normal sort of career path that I took into customer success. So, um, if I think back to sort of twenty years ago, uh, I started doing uh, working at a company that was a franchise organization, actually, and. My first role there was a franchise uh, manager, so uh, I used to look after a lot of the franchisees. I used to train them. I used to kind of, uh, you know, help manage the business uh, as they grew their franchise. It was actually a computer rental company. Uh, and oh, was, okay. Uh, we had, we had franchises around the world, so we used to travel around a bit and do that. And then I moved uh, from that company into more of a, a general management role at a managed service provider, again, in the technology space. Um, so working with a lot of customers, uh, you know, a lot of ongoing subscription contracts to look after companies' IT systems, essentially. Uh, and then I worked with Microsoft for five or six years in a, a role around partner channel management. Uh, you know, Microsoft have a lot of partners around the world that sell the, the technology. So I used yeah. to help, help develop the partner channel management um, uh, side of things. And then uh, I ended up in, in Seattle with Auth0, as you mentioned in the introduction, uh, a little startup at the time of about 20 people that nobody had heard of. Uh, and actually, my first job there was to build uh, or, or assess and build a partner channel. Uh, hence, uh, you know, why uh, they recruited me because I've been doing that at Microsoft. But unfortunately, yeah. unfortunately, after about four or five months there, my assessment was that Auth0 probably didn't need a partner channel right at that point in time. So I, what they did need at Auth0 was uh, customer success and they had just signed a number of big enterprise clients and those clients were coming up to renewal for the first time and we realized that uh, you know, nobody had been engaging with those customers. And so uh, that's really where I stepped into customer success for the first time and uh, I started to think about what that meant and started to build that team. And when I look back in hindsight, 
I think all those roles that I just explained to you, they really had a pretty strong affinity with customer success, really. They were all about lifecycle management and really had a strong concept of uh, kind of mutual partnership with franchisees and uh, managed service provider customers and, and obviously partners in the Microsoft channel. And so I think, you know, in some way I was well prepared for, for the world of customer success. So although you're no longer with Auth0, that's the company we're really going to focus on today. Can you share a little bit about what that organization does and how your CS team there was set up? Yeah, absolutely. So Auth0 uh, is a SaaS company, software as a service company, and it makes uh, a service for software developers. Um, So Kristen, if you think about opening up an app or a website uh, where you have an account, what's what's the first thing that happens? What's the first thing you do? Um, you go through the process of setting up your login and password. Exactly. So that's exactly yeah. what Auth0 does. It's a service that makes identity and authentication simple for developers, and it really powers that login box. Uh, so if you think of the login box in oh. any of those apps or any of those websites, it powers the login box and all the complexity that goes on behind that login box. Um, so you know, really the concept was that every company is a software company these days, whether you're Microsoft or Boeing or Walmart or Chuck E. Cheese, um, yeah. every, every company has developers uh, and they build mm-hmm. software either internally for, for the company or externally for their consumers. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that part of building software, that uh, authentication and identity piece is, is hard. And, uh, you know, now, of course, if you get that part wrong, well, what happens? Well, you usually uh, you headline news and, uh, yeah. you, get, you know, you've got, uh, what is it over there? The Your... Uh, it wasn't the IRS, but one of the big departments over there lost a lot yeah. of, uh, I think it was Equifax or somebody, wasn't it, sometime yes, ago? Yeah, Equifax, yeah. That's right. So anyway, it's bad news if you get it wrong. And so essentially that's what Auth0 does. It makes that developer tool to help uh, make identity and uh, authorization and and, uh, and authentication much simpler for developers. And okay. so in terms of the customer success side of things there? Yeah. Um, look, obviously, you know, over the four or five years I was there, my team had a lot of different iterations. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, but I'd say that the most recent version, uh, when I left the company, I mean, really customer success, uh, you know, owned the whole life cycle uh, of customer management from the onboarding piece through to, you know, continually adding value through to uh, the renewal piece. And really, my team was focused on our, our enterprise customers at Auth0. We did have self-service customers, you know, people that used to jump on the website and pay, yeah. <clears throat> excuse me, $20, $30 a month for a, a subscription. Uh, that was a very small part of our business. The majority was was our big enterprise customers. And so really, that's what the customer success team was, was doing it uh, towards the end. Okay, got it. So when you joined Auth0, what expectations did you have of the company's growth? Did you think you'd need to handle the level of growth that you ended up facing or were you looking for more of that early stage startup experience? Well, I had no idea really what to expect. (laughs) As you can imagine, I I came, uh, you know, I was still living in Australia when I uh, started started to sort of talk with this company about the opportunity to come over. And as I mentioned, they were quite small, of course, when I went over there, probably 20, 25 people. Uh, So I didn't know what to expect. I landed in in Bellevue, Seattle uh, with with, uh, a little bit of nervous expectation and uh, remember rocking up at the first day and 
very small office in Bellevue, you know, few, yep. only a few people in there. A lot of people were still remote. Uh, we only had about five or six people in the office and probably another 20 or 15 that were remote. And uh, no, I had no idea what to expect in terms of growth, but um, I did have a good feeling about, you know, the people that had founded the company and the management team. And that was one of the reasons that I was prepared to kind of take the leap and, and come from Australia over to the US and start there. And um you know, I think it was pretty obvious early in the piece that uh, it was going to be a fairly fast-growing company. You know, in the first five or yeah. six months, uh, you know, we were we were growing quickly, both from a staff point of view, but also from a customer point of view. Um, so, in the end, it felt exactly like what I was looking for. You know, I really wanted to work in a startup. I wanted to work in that fast-paced environment. Uh, I was hoping it was going to be obviously a successful startup that I happened to go and work for. And, uh, you know, early indications for all those things for sure were, were going to happen. So um, it, it was exactly the experience I wanted to work at that small startup that uh, really turned into a, you know, quite a big scale up by the time I'd left. That's exciting. Um, you and I share a Seattle connection. So I just want to ask you like one off-road question yeah, about that. Right. What were your favorite things about Seattle and what were your least favorite? Oh, I loved Seattle. I mean, uh, you know, my family and, and I really enjoyed living there and it was a tough decision to come home last year when we did. Look, we, we, we loved summer, I think. Uh, we, we lived in Kirkland yeah. and, uh, on the lake there and we just loved summers in Seattle. Oh, beautiful. It was consistently yeah. beautiful. You had the lake there. Uh, we had friends that had boats. So we'd spent a lot of time on the, on the lake during summers. Um, so I think we just loved that. We loved the nature. We loved the fact you could go out and walk in the woods. And during winter, you could go and ski at, uh, you know, not too far away. So that was probably the part I loved. What didn't we like? I don't know. We didn't, there wasn't much we didn't like. I mean, my, my wife would probably say the weather was a little bit cool during winter. Yeah. Than we were used to, I, but I'm from Melbourne originally. Yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. Well, I'm from Melbourne, yeah. which is over on the, on the west, uh, east coast of Australia. And actually yeah. not too dissimilar to Seattle. It's known as kind of the grey, wet city of of Australia. Uh, so it doesn't get quite as cold in, in Melbourne as what it does in Seattle. But, uh, but uh, yeah. That, oh, that, so those, you, were, those, you were pretty used to it. <laughs> yes, exactly. Those long grey yeah. winters weren't, weren't too hard to get through for me. Just another, okay. you know, nothing that another jacket couldn't, uh, couldn't fix. <laughs> I was just curious. So thanks for indulging me on, the, on this Seattle conversation. <laughs> no worries. Um, I, I want to get into your advice on scaling a team, but before we get into specifics, one thing that you had mentioned to me as we were prepping for the interview is that in an early stage company, it's really important not to build the team to scale at first. Can you explain why? Yeah, it sounds a bit crazy. And I think people do a bit of a double take when I say that to them. So I'll explain a little bit, but particularly, you know, I provide that advice for, for fairly early stage startups. And uh, I have a bit of a saying that I like to think about building for scale, but not at scale in that early stage. Right. And that's particularly in relation to, to people, uh, tools and, and resources and processes and those types of things. And the reasoning behind that is, look, you're eventually going to need to scale and optimize, of course. Um, mm -hmm. So I think all the decisions that you make in the early part of that journey uh, should keep that in mind. For example, the tools that you might be investing in, you know, make sure the tools that are going to be likely uh, the ones that are going to scale with you, that are going to be useful when you grow. Um, people that you're hiring, make sure they're people that are going to be the sort of people that are you know, able to scale in terms of, you know, happy to be at a bigger company. And the roles even that you're recruiting for, make sure that make sure the roles that are going to make sense as you grow as a company. Um, but the point is, don't invest uh, all your effort. Uh, in building at scale immediately as you're acquiring those, uh, you know, new hires and tools. Um, yeah. And the reason that I think that's important is that you know most most uh, the, the the way that we understand what to scale, the most valuable thing to build at scale, 
is uh, you know the way to understand that is to really be super close to the customers at the very beginning of that journey um, to get the feedback that you need from the customers to be able to kind of iterate and experiment uh, and pivot quickly and really it's only by doing that that I think you can understand what the right things are to invest in uh, to kind of build that scale eventually um, you know I've seen plenty of customers or sorry plenty of uh, uh, startups, I should say, uh, they're my customers at the moment. That's why I call them customers. But plenty of plenty of startups who, uh, you know, at the very beginning, they think scale is super important, which of course you know it is at some stage. But you know, literally before they really understand their customers or what's valuable uh, in terms of dealing with their customers, you know, they're they're off building automated systems and automated touch points, um, and uh, you know those things can take months and months to set up. And you know maybe they do an absolutely fantastic job of setting up some of that. Uh, those scale sort of processes. But the thing is, when they switch them on, uh, you know, they get little engagement from the customer's point of view, because they're just not valuable. They're not the right things. Um, and so I think right. that, that's the mistake that some people make. And again, the, the only way to understand what is valuable, I think, is to have everybody um, very close to those customers at the beginning. And, and that does mean a lot of manual processes. But hey, that's the that's part of the hard slog of being in a startup. Um, right. you know, if you're a CEO in a startup of three or four people or 10 people and you've only got a dozen customers, I'd expect the CEO to be on the phone to every new customer um, that they mm -hmm. acquire and you know, asking them the sort of questions that, uh, that you'd want to know as a CEO. Does yeah, that make sense? absolutely. That's great advice, I think. Um, okay, so for the rest of the interview, we're going to focus on the way that you approach scaling your CS program. So let's start with segmentation. What role did that play in your program? Well, it played a very important role and, um, you know, it wasn't something that we had at all at the beginning, uh, of course, because we didn't have that many <laughs> no. customers and we just treated them all the same. But eventually that didn't start to work so well um, for various reasons. One, because, you know, there were there were only so many, so many people that could do so many things in the company and so many CSMs. And two, because, you know, we started to realize that different types of customers also, uh, they wanted a different type of experience. And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, segmentation was one of the things that we, we took on very early as uh, something that we could do to help improve the way that we engage with customers, but also improve the efficiency and things a little bit of how we were going about doing things. Um, so like a lot of people, if I think back, I think um, our first kind of segmentation was simply by, by ARR, by uh, annual recurring revenue, by you know, contract size, essentially. Yeah, that's um, pretty typical. Right, exactly. Pretty typical, yeah. but it made absolutely no sense. <laughs> <Really>. <laughs> I mean, it really didn't make any sense in terms of why we, we, we would do that, but it was kind of what everybody did, like you said. And so we thought, well, that must be how you do things. And so that's what we did. Um, and, you know, that lasted a, an amount of time. And, and as you do, you, you pivot and we changed. And probably the next type of segmentation, if I remember correctly, I think then we started to think about company size. So, uh, you know, if you're a, a small company or a mid-sized company or a big enterprise, so it might have been something like, you know, one to 100 staff, uh, 100 to 250, 250 to 1,000, and then 1,000 and over. And we thought maybe that was a better way to, to segment customers and deal with them. It probably worked a little bit better, but still didn't quite seem to to fit. You know, there were still plenty of times where somebody who was a, a, a 25 person company seemed to want the expectation that an enterprise customer was getting and, and vice versa. Um, so and then I remember then pivoting into kind of more of a use case segmentation. 
Um, mm -hmm. Our customers at Auth0 used our technology in a lot of different ways. There were some internal use cases where they were building apps internally uh, and using sort of enterprise login. And then there was more consumer use cases where it was somebody like The Guardian over in the UK, the newspaper, online newspaper, that were building apps for consumers and you know, millions of consumers. So that was a different type mm -hmm. of use case. And that worked a little bit better, actually. That was kind of, uh, we're going down the right path when we started to think about segmentation to do with use case. And then I think finally where we ended up was really a combination of all of those, to be honest, Kristen. It was it was company right. size and use case uh, and kind of almost what's the expected engagement? You know, what is the customer expecting from us? And sometimes we just ask those types of questions during the onboarding or, or even actually, to be honest, probably during the sales process. Uh, the sales team owned a little bit of that as well. Yeah. Um, and so it really became, uh, you know, quite a... Uh, I guess a bit of a custom segmentation in terms of, you know, you had to put a bit of thought into it. There were some default things that uh, maybe we'd look at and a customer would fall into a particular segmentation by default, but it then used to be quite a, a custom conversation with the sales executive who might've done the deal and even having the customer involved in that conversation about where, where does it make sense to segment the customer? You know, which, which of course, most importantly came down to how do they expect uh, the engagement to look, what sort of, uh, you know, experience are they looking for? And so, um, you know, we had probably three different engagement models, uh, you know, from mm -hmm. typical kind of light touch to much more uh, dedicated one-on-one -on -one CSM and maybe even technical resource. And so we used to allocate uh, customers in each of those segments based on you know, really what we thought the experience was that they needed based on those things like use case uh, and okay. so on. And so that, nice. that, that seemed to work pretty well in the end. Uh, and, and look, there are always times where, uh, you know, we got it wrong. Uh, you know, a customer might have <laughs> fell into, into one segment. And the thing was that we just, you know, we decided to be flexible about it. And so uh, if they didn't seem to be working well with one engagement type uh, of model, then we'd, we'd uh, have a conversation with them and perhaps the salesperson and we'd move them into another one. Uh, and, and that's sort of how it worked for us at the end. Got it. So from segmentation, how did you design the customer journey and the related processes for your team? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think, again, there was a lot of different iterations about how we how we did that. But, yeah, you know, I, I think most importantly, in the end, it came down to that kind of term again around expected engagement. Uh, it was really, you know, what was the customer trying to do and what would they expect from us to be able to get there? And also, you know, based on those different use cases, as I mentioned, you know, what were the things that they had to do to kind of get up and running around those different use cases and what was really valuable to them. And you know, yeah. as you can imagine, and as I'm sure you've gone through at some stage, I remember literally standing in front of a whiteboard for, you know, a few <laughs> days on end and, and sort of sketching these journeys out, you know, well, if you've got this yeah. use case, then here are the things that we think the customer needs to do. Of course, we even ask customers and, and put surveys out there and those types of things. In fact, we used a framework. I'm not sure if you've heard of the jobs to be done framework. Have you heard of that? Mm -mm. No, okay. I haven't. Well, that's quite a popular framework uh, uh, that uh, I think actually product teams use a lot of the time to really understand, mm -hmm. you know, what are the core features they need to build in their products. But it's a framework that I find really useful for a lot of things, but certainly for customer success. And it's really about, you know, putting your customer hat on and thinking about the job that the customer is trying to achieve by mm -hmm. using using your product. Um, and, you know, it goes into quite granular detail and it, it sort of breaks things down into almost every step of the way, you know, about what a customer is thinking and what they need to do. So everything from at some point they need to get approval from their boss to they need to get buy-in from other users to then there's the actual thing that they're trying to achieve, you know, whatever the task yeah. is. And it really makes you think about, you know, what, 
the customer might need from you as the vendor uh, at each one of those steps. And, and that was something that was really useful for us in terms of planning out that customer journey and trying to understand, you know, what did our onboarding process look like? What did the customer really need from us during onboarding to, um, to help them achieve that job to be done that they needed to do in that early piece? And then what were the valuable things we could do during the middle of the life cycle that were really going to help them yeah. move along, uh, you know, their, their, their journey. And then of course, you know, getting towards the, the, the renewal piece, you know, what were the things that we could do there to add more value and to bring them into the next kind of cycle of, of our product and their product as well. Um, so yeah, I recommend having a look at the jobs to be done, uh, jobs to be done framework for your listeners. If, uh, if that's something they're not familiar with. That's great. Before we continue with the rest of the interview, we're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Right now in the spring of 2020, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. I hope that those of you who are listening have a safe place to stay and that your friends and family are healthy. At the Success League, we're sheltering in place and finding new ways to work remotely with our customers. I know that many of you are doing the same and I wanted to share a few free resources with all of you. First, we have almost five years of weekly customer success articles in our blog archive. If you need some short but powerful things to read, check out the blog page on our website, thesuccessleague.io. Second, we started an online customer success book club. This quarter, we're reading What Customers Crave by Nicholas Webb. If you're interested in joining the club, please reach out to me at Kristen, K-R-I-S-T-E-N, at thesuccessleague.io. Finally, the Success League partnered with Strike Deck to provide exercises for each chapter in their free ebook, A Beginner's Guide to Customer Success. If you're looking to enrich your knowledge of our field or grow skills across your team, this book is a great place to start, and you can find it on the resources page on strikedeck.com. I hope that all of you stay safe and healthy during this pandemic and that you are able to make the most of your stay-at-home time by growing your family relationships and building your career and customer success. I also want to mention Strike Deck's new Customer 360 template. This free download is the best way to figure out if you're ready for a customer success tool. It is an automated spreadsheet that will help you keep track of all your current customers, generating an individual health score for each one. Quick reports can be easily developed through the Analytics tab, and tasks can be tracked on the Task Manager. If you're looking for a quick, simple to use, yet robust solution for your CS needs, StrikeDeck's Customer 360 template is the tool for you. Download your copy today at strikedeck.com. And now back to our interview. So Clayton, let's talk about your people. What did you land on as the ideal profile for a CSM in your organization? And how did you approach hiring? Well, that's another thing that certainly shifted over time as we- uh, Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah. But I, I remember very early on having to make a pretty big call, actually. I mean, if you think about the product at Auth0, uh, you know, I mentioned it was a, a developer tool, quite a technical, you know, technical tool. Um, and so I, I remember sort of, you know, having to build this team and thinking about, well, what was going to be most valuable? Was it to build a team that is going to engage with the end users of our product, which were really developers, you know, engineers and software developers, or do mm -hmm. we need to build a tool that is going to be engaging with kind of the key decision makers, which uh, in Auth0's case were people like 
you know, it could be every, everybody from chief marketing officers to, you know, VPs of engineering, VPs of product. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was kind of the first call we had to make, which I think, you know, is obviously an important one for any customer success team is, you know, where are you right. actually going to add most value? And I don't think there's a, a right or wrong answer, although, uh, you know, I do think there's a little bit of a bias now, if you like, towards making sure that you're building a CS team that can add value to the end users, which you know, certainly is a great, a great strategy. Um, but I don't think you can forget about the key decision makers either. But in our case, we actually kind of decided to build a team that was much more aligned to those key decision makers because okay. um, the problem that we had at Authero was such a technical product is that uh, you know, we, we developers loved it, but a lot of the key decision makers of big enterprise companies really didn't understand it. You know, it was such a technical mm-hmm. product. They didn't really understand what it did. And so, well, we wanted to make sure that we could add the value and help educate that kind of audience. And, um, and right. you know, that, would there, that would therefore shift down into the developer space anyway. So that was the first kind of decision I remember having to make is, is uh, what type of team do we want to build? And then I really had this, I came up with this theory. And again, I had another saying. I've got a lot of sayings, Kristen. <laughs> this, is another, <laughs> That's good. Another, this is another saying I used to have. Um, and I used to talk about internally all the time. And this concept of hiring athletes, you know, when, when I think you asked about the type mm-hmm. of um, profile almost of a CSM, you know, yeah. what they look like. Well, you know, I used to have this concept in my head of, of hiring athletes, particularly again in, in a startup and in this early stage startup. And by athletes, what I kind of used to mean was, um, you know, people that uh, that were good at a lot of different things. You know, almost like a, mm-hmm. I don't know, what is it? The heptathlon? Is that the is that a sport? Is that the is that the sport where they oh, do? Oh, I don't. I've, I have to say, I'm probably not the right person to ask that question. <laughs> maybe that's maybe it's a de- decathlon. It might be a decathlon. Yeah, there you go. But anyway, the point that is, I understand. The point is, it was people that could do a bit of everything. They could hurdle. They could yeah. do pole vault. They could do the long jump. They can run 800 meters. They can run a marathon. Uh, because yeah. they're the sort of people that you need, uh, you know, at that stage in the start. People that can yeah. deal with ambiguity. People that are happy to take on a role that doesn't really have a blueprint. Um, you know, and they're willing, and this was a big part of it, really. And in fact, I remember asking people this exact question during uh, interviews is that I needed them to be willing to be part of building the team uh, and not mm-hmm. simply just being in the team. You know, we were at that stage right. where we were growing so quickly and I was hiring a lot of people. And so, uh, you know, I, I needed people to really want to be part of building a team and not just kind of be a passenger in it. In fact, I used to use another analogy, which is a common one around, you know, building the plane at the same time as flying it essentially is, is the term I used right. to use. Um, and so, you know, really they're, they're the sort of people that, that, that I was looking to hire. Now, of course, you know, having some level of uh, customer success experience or account management or sales experience was generally you know, something to look for, but it wasn't critical. You know, I certainly didn't only hire people that had been in customer success roles because just like, you know, I explained my experience earlier in the show, um, I think there's a lot of affinity with other roles and, uh, uh, and other functions that people do that work very well in customer success. So it wasn't a big deal to me if they hadn't had customer success, uh, success experience. Uh, what was important was that they were athletes, uh, that they fit the culture of the company we were trying to build, and that they you know, really understood what it meant to kind of uh, be in a customer-facing role and, and do everything you could to, to make a customer uh, happy. Um, yeah, yeah. I think that's great. I, I mean, I've had quite a lot of people on the podcast who have said exactly the same thing. Like they've had really good luck hiring people that are, you know, not necessarily customer success managers, but maybe are domain experts or people that have kind of complementary skill sets or people that have um, kind of that empathy piece, right. but maybe haven't had formal training. 
And so I think companies are having to get creative partially because there's a shortage of CSMs right now. So uh, you have to kind of get creative with where you're hiring. Exactly. And I think the other advantage of that is that if you hire, you know, strictly customer success people who have been at other companies and they're, they're sort of uh, rote taught in the customer success program at that company, then they come into your company and sometimes their thinking is a little bit uh, narrow and pigeonholed because they're so mm -hmm. used to doing things the same way all the time in, in the other company they've been at. If you hire people that have never been in a customer success role, then I think you end up with actually a, a much larger diversity of thinking in your team and your customer success program looks like no other because nobody's yeah. done it before and you're really building it from, from scratch with a lot of original ideas. So, you know, that's something I think uh, is very valuable as well. Um, and just one last comment that I was going to mention around, you know, kind of hiring as well. Um, you know, I remember a lot of the hires in uh, those initial periods as well being uh, personal referrals from people in the company, which, again, I think is you know, really important for a startup. Uh, you know, trust, being able to trust people and uh, yeah. you know, have uh, a lot of that ability to work autonomously is really important when you're in an early stage startup. And so uh, there were a lot of times where we hired somebody in the team and then, you know, they recommended a couple of other people that the, perhaps they'd worked with in the past. And, um, you know, there was, there was, it wasn't uncommon to then, you know, hire some, some personal connections of people that had just come on the team. And, you know, that was also good because there was often, you know, quick rapport in the team because people had had relationships before as well. So yeah. Well. Yeah. And that ties right into my next question for you, which is, I know that about half of your team members were remote. So what were the challenges and benefits of scaling your team with remote team members? Yeah, well, not only half of my team was remote, but in fact, half of our company at Alt Zero was yeah. remote. So, um, uh, you know, at the time I left with five, 550 odd people, I think in the company, um, you know, 250 at least of those were remote. Uh, we had a big office in Bellevue. We had a big office down in Buenos Aires in Argentina, mm -hmm. uh, office over in the UK. Uh, yeah, and about 200, 250 people were in those offices and the rest were spread okay. all, all around the world, 46 countries or something, if I remember. Wow. So That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, uh, and, and look in times like what we're going through at the moment, uh, you know, also very advantageous now that everybody's <laughs> so used to working yeah. remote. Um, but yep. ch challenges, you know, for sure, uh, in terms of managing remote teams, I mean, it was the first time as a manager, really, that uh, I had managed uh, teams that, that were remote. Now, I had some people in the office, you know, physically with me mm -hmm. and sure. uh, other, other people that weren't. So, that, in fact, and that was a challenge in itself because, you know, what I found is that, you know, the really, as a manager, you really had to have an understanding of some of the nuances uh, in managing, you know, the people that were remote and what the differences were between that and managing the people that are sort of sitting next to you every day. And by default, yeah. I think it's very easy to have some natural kind of uh, uh, bias towards the people that you see every day and uh, and give them perhaps opportunities and, and advantages and things that, that the remote people would miss out on because not because you're doing it on purpose, but just because of the fact that you're kind of seeing other people in in physical presence every day. And so I think right. you really, you really, the thing I learned was that you really need to be uh, purposeful around providing the same kind of, uh, uh, I, I guess, contact and relationships. And, uh, you know, I used the word equity a lot when I was um, back in the day, not equity in terms of money necessarily, but equity in terms of the same opportunity uh, and the same right. benefits for people, whether they're remote or whether they're uh, in person. I mean, quite often the, you know, the, the, the direct reports I had that were in person, you know, we used to 
we'd be able to just sit in a room for an hour and a half and we might run through some, some I don't know, it might have been a piece around learning, like professional development even for somebody in my team. Now, that's not as easy to do and, and uh, you know, people that are remote might not have that same advantage of being able to jump in a room, but we worked out ways to still be able to provide those sorts of things to people that were working from home. Um, so I think, you know, that's certainly one of the challenges is just understanding as a manager that there are different ways and, and nuances of kind of managing people that aren't physically with you every day. Uh, the other challenges, of course, are, are more obvious. Things like, you know, people were scattered all in different time zones. I had somebody here in Australia while I was in Seattle. We had people on the uh, east coast of the US while I was on the west coast. We had people in the UK. Um, and so, uh, you know, I found myself up super early in the mornings and up super late at nights having different calls. Uh, you know, that gets boring and, and, and old pretty yeah. quickly when you don't have a lot of sleep. Um, so that was a bit of a challenge. Uh, and you've got to try and figure out how you adjust with that and, and work with the team. Um, and the other thing that was a challenge is certainly, particularly with such a new team, I guess, in terms of, you know, when you're building a team from scratch is you know, building that rapport and the personal relationships within the team uh, are more difficult than you know, what you would come to expect if it was just a, a team that was all physically in an office. Uh, right. And that's something that, you you know, you need to work hard at because, I mean, that's part of the beauty of building a team for me. That's why I love building teams is kind of that that, that rapport, that relationship, that energy you get as a team. Um, right. And that's something that you need to work really hard on when you're, when you're working on a remote team because it's something that doesn't happen as naturally as it would in an office. So they're kind of a couple of the challenges. And then if I think of benefits, um, well, in fact, some of those challenges really were benefits as well. You know, if you think about uh, the time zone issue, well, of course, that was also a benefit. You know, being able to have people in different time zones uh, gave us the ability to have great geographical coverage for, for our customers. So, you know, we were able to really provide a customer success service, if you like, to, to people anywhere in the world because we had good, good yeah. geographical coverage. So that's the advantage of having uh, people everywhere. The other advantage was that, uh, you know, we, we were really able to hire the best people uh, for the job, no matter where they were. And really, that's kind of how that whole remote thing started for us. It wasn't necessarily a super deliberate strategy. It wasn't we wanted to be a remote company. It was really more an attitude of just hiring the best people that we could hire. And if they happened to be in uh, New York or Canada or India or Australia, it didn't really matter at the time. We just hired them. Yeah. Uh, and that's certainly one of the benefits, and particularly as we move forward. And I think after we get through this uh, uh, this COVID situation, you know, I think remote yeah. working will become, you know, a lot of people would see the advantages now and understand that, wow, we have access to a talent pool of people greater than just within our city or within our state or within our country. Yeah. Um, what else? Was yeah, and just for the just for the audience, um, if you're listening to this in the future, we are um, taping this at the um, kind of apex maybe of the COVID nineteen right. situation in 2020. So uh, a lot of people are working from home right now, and there's a lot of remote work happening. And I think it has been really eye opening for people that you can do this and you can do it really effectively. I imagine for the uh, for the podcast artwork that you're going to do for this episode, you have a picture of you and I with face masks on, bunkered down at home. <laughs> Possibly. We'll have to see. We'll have to see what Zara and, and the uh, team can do <laughs> with this one. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I think the last benefit I was going to mention in terms of remote work, again, it comes back to kind of what I was mentioning as a challenge, but a benefit is also around that piece around culture and, uh, you know, yeah. how, how the type of culture you end up building as a team and a company is different when, when you're remote. Um, and I think that really does become a benefit as well because, um, you know, there are different, there are different, uh, 
aspects of working remotely that tend to make people, I think, want to contribute more and be more vocal and, uh, and a few different pieces that I really like that I think contributes to a great culture in a company. Um, so there's some of the benefits, I think, of having a remote team. That's fantastic. So toward the end of your tenure at Auth0, you became the director of culture. How did that role relate to the work that you had done with the customer success organization? Yeah, well, it came about uh, because of a few different things. Um, one for sure was because I'd built this customer success team now over uh, about three years at that point, and we were really starting to, to flick over into optimize mode. I mean, the company had grown from 20, 25 people to, you know, at this point when I was sort of coming to the end of that customer success tenure, we were probably at 300 people. So, you know, we were a different type of company at that stage. It was a different job now managing that team. Like I said, it was much more of the optimization and scaling. And I just found that I wasn't enjoying it as much myself. And I kind of had this realization at that time that, you know, I'm somebody who actually enjoys those really early stages of, of building a team. Um, and there's a great book actually by a fellow called uh, Scott Belsky. It's called The Messy Middle. And, um, uh, you know, I read that book some time ago, but I, I came to realize that I'm somebody who likes the beginning of this messy middle journey, you know, where there is all that ambiguity and where there is no roadmap and where you kind of need to, you know, grab a bunch of people and lead them into the into the darkness, basically. You know, that's actually yeah. what, I, what I'm good at. And what I, what I uh, don't like doing or what I, I guess I start to tune out in is when it becomes, you know, like a well-oiled machine and it's now more about sort of twisting and turning the knobs and watching the graphs and looking at the numbers and just making little right. subtle changes. And so that's really where it was at. The, the CS team was working well, but it was now about how do we continue to optimize? Um, and so that's kind of where the, the discussion started about, well, uh, you know, what can I do next? Um, the other advantage I'd had is that I'd really been at the front line uh, for the whole time at the company, you know, in terms of dealing with customers and all our customer facing staff. Um, and it really gave me a great understanding of both how we as a company were perceived by our customers and also the types of behaviors uh, that we were putting out there. I guess it really reflected our values and, and how we could yeah. even improve that even more. And so I, I always reported to our co-founder and CEO the whole time I was at Authstura and uh, him and I, I think were very aligned around uh, company culture. Um, you know, we we built a lot of the customer success, you know, team and functions together as well. So we worked work, worked together very well. And so really, when we sat down and sort of discussed where I was at in terms of this team, um, you know, we had we had this idea of well, you seem to understand, you know, the culture side of our company very well, and I think we share the same idea. And so this this position of uh, of culture lead was born, which was you know, pretty unique and uh, not a lot of companies were doing it at the time. But it was an area that I was really interested in as well. It was something I'd never really worked in before. It sort of had elements of, I guess, HR and, and people uh, around it that I, I hadn't really worked in. Uh, I'd been more sales, marketing, general management sort of focused. Um, yeah. And so that's kind of how I ended up in, in that role. And so, yeah, I think, I think working in that customer success uh, area for so long, if you like, um, it really just gave me that perspective of, of what the company culture was. Uh, and that's really one of the advantages of being in customer success, I think, is that customer facing element really gives you a good, a good opportunity to understand how customers see you as a company and the sort of, sort of uh, uh, outlook you're giving to your customers to, to set you up as, you know, or set up your culture in terms of how it looks outward facing. Right. So Clayton, what are the biggest pieces of advice you would give to somebody who is where you were trying to scale up a CS team from startup through the growth phase? What do you wish you had done or not done? Oh, goodness me. How much time do we have? 
<laughs> there are plenty pick, your things, big, pick your big three, maybe. There are plenty of things I wish I hadn't done, yeah, but we'd be here all day. Um, look, I think some of the advice that I give, uh, you know, people now uh, in terms of thinking about building a customer success team um, is around being very clear about what function that customer success org actually wants to own. Uh, I think, you know, when I talk to, to companies now and when I think back to even our time at Alt Zero, uh, you know, there were there were months, maybe even a year that went by where it probably wasn't even really clear exactly what functions the customer success team owned. As in, you know, did we own support? Did we own the renewal piece? Did we own onboarding? Was it our job to market to our existing customers? Was it not? And I think that's what I find in a lot of companies. Uh, you know, there's still a bit of confusion about who owns what. Does sales own some of those things? Does marketing yeah. own some of those things? So I think, I think, you know, really early on in the piece as a CS leader need to put kind of a stake in the ground around what the I like to call them kind of macro functions are that your team is going to own and make sure that there is clarity around the company uh, and everybody's in agreement with that so there's no misunderstanding. Um, and so that really involves getting you know a lot of the key stakeholders uh, involved, you know, whether it's your engineering lead, your CEO, your sales lead, you know, you really need to be clear about what what ownership exists between the teams. And, and really, that's an important piece, I think, is, is, you know, another important piece that I would advise people is getting everybody, getting those key stakeholders on board early in terms of helping them understand what customer success is and really building a bit of a customer mm-hmm. success culture across the organization. Because, you know, we all know that customer success is not just dependent on the customer success team. It really needs to be bought in um, by the entire company to be successful. So I think helping your key stakeholders to understand you know, what customer success does, where it adds value to both the customers, but most importantly, you know, how it adds value to their teams as well. And then in return, you know, what their obligation is as the leader of engineering or as the leader of sales or as the marketing lead, what their obligation is back to you as the CS leader um, in terms mm-hmm. of you know, helping you provide the best experience to customers. I like to call them internal contracts. You know, I think you need to get your internal contracts sorted out to make sure there's a clear understanding of, of uh, how you add value and what value you expect back from the customer, uh, from the internal uh, stakeholders. And the last bit of advice would probably be, uh, I've got it written down here, data, data, data. Um, yeah. I think getting all the data you can in the early days is important. Making sure you have the systems to capture that data. Making sure that your, if you're a SaaS company, making sure that your product is uh, is you know uh, instrumented in a way that it can record all the customer usage data. Making sure that you understand, you know, when you're doing marketing efforts, what your open rates are, how long it takes people to click on things, how many responses do you get. All the data you can grab early on um, is going to make a great difference to you know, the way that you experiment and iterate and build programs as you grow. So, you know, that's mm-hmm. one of the things when I walk into a company now and have a look at, uh, you know, what data they're gathering, you know, it's, if they haven't got any, it's kind of like the hand on face moment. It's like, oh, no, you've got to, you've got to capture data. Whether it's <laughs> customer success or sales or marketing, it doesn't matter. I think, you know, in this day and age, there's no excuse for not having the systems in place to just have a, an influx of data, even if you can't make sense of it at the beginning. Yeah. At least it's there to, 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 you know, permutate and make combinations out of later and you can figure, figure out what it means. But yeah, I think that's, that's a key thing as well. So that'd be yeah. a couple of couple of key points I'd advise people on. Those are great pieces of advice. My my big red flag is when people can't tell me how many customers they have. So Clayton, last question: What do you see as the biggest trend in customer success right now, and why? Well, um, 
I think the biggest trend in customer success right now is, in fact, customer success itself. Um, you know, it just seems to be uh, becoming more and more pervasive. Uh, I think we're well past the tipping point now of the, the subscription economy, if you like. You know, yep. customers are empowered much more, and I think companies are realizing that. And when you see companies like, uh, you know, even Microsoft now uh, are building customer success teams, uh, mm-hmm. A lot of their roles are being changed from whatever name they might have had to, to kind of customer success managers and you have Salesforce are doing the same and, and uh, uh, MuleSoft and a lot of these other uh, companies are kind of really doubling down on customer success. So I think it is a trend in its own right. In fact, I think I saw the uh, LinkedIn Emerging Jobs 2020 report a few weeks ago that they released and customer success was number six. Uh, customer success manager was number six on the emerging jobs report. I think it had about a 30 or 40% growth year on year. So, you know, kind of a data point there, which shows it really is, you know, growing. It is a trend. Um, yeah. In terms of actual uh, trends within customer success itself, you know, I think what I mentioned before around uh, that segmentation piece, you know, I think, I think people are thinking mm-hmm. much deeper around segmentation. They're using data to drive segmentation in a much more thoughtful way. It's simply not a matter of just sort of looking at your, your customer ARR and uh, dividing them up by, by uh, their revenue anymore. Um, and the other trend I'm seeing is I think companies are actually adopting customer success a lot earlier. Uh, you know, typically customer success is something that companies invested in when they were at that scale phase, you know, they, they were well in the right. market by now and they were kind of starting to scale out their sales team and, and their customer base. And so customer success became an issue for them in terms of, well, gee, we need that function and they'd start building it then. Now I'm seeing customers uh, or startups uh, really invest much earlier in the piece, even as early as kind of when they're still trying to find product market fit, to be honest, you know, when they might only have a, a, a handful right. of customers. But I think, again, they're just understanding now the value of customer success and the value of retention, really. And I mean, there's no better indicator of product market fit than, than customer retention, really. And I think that's, uh, that's where customer success is adding a lot of value. So I think there are a few, few key trends I've seen. Great. Well, Clayton, I really appreciate you taking the time to join me on the podcast today. Thanks for being willing to share your experience with the audience and for your advice on how to approach the challenge of scaling CS and for, frankly, just being here during the coronavirus outbreak. Um, (laughs) So thank you so much. No problems at all. It's nice to have a a distraction. And uh, yeah, look, folks can find uh, more about me uh, by going to mxgrowth.com, which is my website. We have a newsletter there called the Startup Foundations Builder, uh, so they can subscribe to that. And also I'm on all the usual things like Twitter and LinkedIn. Uh, You can just search for my name. It's a very uh, unique name, so you won't have any trouble finding me. The only thing you'll have trouble with is spelling it correctly. So uh, (laughs) good luck with that. Why don't you spell your last name while we're at it? Oh, gee, it takes a while. M O, <laughs> It's M-O-U-L-Y-N-O-X, Molino. That's what it is. Okay, perfect. Thank you. No problem. I also, <laughs> good to talk with you. I also want to thank our sponsors, Strike Deck and the Success League. To learn more about Strike Deck, you can visit strikedeck.com and follow Strike Deck on LinkedIn or at Strike Deck on Twitter. To find out more about the Success League, please visit our website, thesuccessleague.io, and follow the Success League on LinkedIn or at TSL Customers on Twitter. To get all of the latest episodes, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And finally, thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time.